This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's 7.01. You're on Triple R with Bite Into It. Tonight in studio, we have Dan. Hello. We also have San. Hello. And I'm tonight Van. Because, you know, Vanessa just couldn't work with this sort of pattern matching going on. You've been looking forward to saying that all day. Oh, look, day. it's totally weird. And You tweeted about it. It's I know. really cute. I just, <laughs> we never rhyme, we so don't. it's fun. Vanessa doesn't rhyme with anything. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, no, let's not go there. So coming up tonight, <laughs> it does rhyme with one thing. Coming up tonight, we have the um, very enigmatic Joel Van de Vorstenbosch. I hope I'm doing justice to your name, Joel. We're very happy that you have a van in your name also. And... Uh, he is a developer and uh, co-founder of Alta, which is a virtual reality uh, company. So that's going to be really amazing. Do stick around to hear more about that. But before we get to that this evening, let's hear some news. Let's. So um, it's uh, it's a pretty momentous uh, week for the good people over at Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, they are on the on the cusp of reaching 100 million subscribers, which is huge. Um, I, I, I will go out on a limb and say that I, I did sign my dad up to uh, Netflix over the weekend, so he may have been the 100 million subscriber. When, <laughs> if, if Netflix are listening, they can they can send him the accolades. Um, I'll, I'll let you know his address. But um, it's, it's, it's big news because um, they've just been growing exponentially in the last... I mean, obviously, you, you see that Netflix in two, the last two or three years have um, been expanding internationally beyond the United States. Now, mm. it, it should be said that 50 million of the subscri- of their total subscribers, so about 50% of uh, Netflix's subscribers are from the US. But that does mean that there are 50 million outside the US and they're expecting... Um, huge gains to continue. I mean, they're still um, nipping at the heels somewhat of um, uh, the the HBO subscription service. They have about 150 million. Okay. Mm. But um, they're, they're, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be too long, particularly as Netflix continue to bring out, you know, new content and as they're starting to do Australia, original, original content in other countries. So, mm. you know, Australian-based, we've heard rumours of Australian-based uh, uh, original content uh, to be coming out of the Netflix stable in the coming months, but we'll see where that goes. What excites me most about this, I think, is hopefully their negotiating power will be a little bit stronger and I'd really love to see their catalogue expand in markets like Australia because we really don't have access to the vast catalogue of content that people in the States have. And that's, you know, partly due to the fact that we've got a lot fewer subscribers, mm-hmm. but also the bargaining power they have with uh, people like Foxtel, cable companies. And, and with, you know, the, the, the big hitter, you know, every, everyone who has a Netflix account is uh, th- quietly thinking to themselves, when will Game of Thrones be on Netflix? Um, you know, it may be never, but, I mean, if if Netflix's leverage pe- leveraging power increases, then we may well see them forcing, forcing the issue. Wouldn't mm. that be great? Mm. Exciting times. Fantastic. And in another end company, Nintendo, San, what's been going on with them? So obviously everybody um, would probably be aware that the Nintendo Switch, their uh, Nintendo's newest console came out only a few months ago um, and had a really, really successful launch. Um, There are rumours going around at the moment uh, that it will be getting an iteration by uh, 2019. Um, It will sort of be... uh, pushing the Nintendo Switch further into the portable market. So interestingly, um, the Switch 
acts as a, both a home console and a, a portable console, but there are complaints that uh, the the system doesn't really work for people with smaller hands, children, the um, sort of controller which uh, houses a, a screen um, is sort of a bit too uh, difficult and cumbersome to move around. So. Um, Chances are we're looking at um, a, a Switch Mini of some some kind, um, and chances are that will be that will mean that will be lighter and sort of moving into uh, Nintendo's portable market. So may well be the replacement for the the 3DS, um, and it's speculated that yeah it will come out in the next two years and try to retain as much of the the same functionality that the um, current Switch does have outside of the um, removable uh, Joy-Cons, which are the motion control, Mm. some sort of component, but it basically means that you can carry around a 720p screen and play uh, all your Switch games on the go. Yeah, the reviews have been really rave, haven't they? Mm. All right. Uh, At the moment, the uh, Facebook F8 developer conference is on. It's a two-day conference. So it started on the 18th, but uh, because of the time difference between us and the States, really, it's sort of been going on from from last night. Uh, Ten years ago, Mark Zuckerberg introduced the social graph, Facebook's map of the connections between everyone on the planet and... That's something that you know gives you real insights into the connectedness of people on the platform, and made the site increasingly appealing to advertisers and to people wanting to push content out as well. So people have been speculating what was going to be um, coming out of the current F8 conference. Um, Wired had a speculative article talking about. Um, Facebook stories, Instagram stories, Messenger Day, WhatsApp statuses, and you know, and looking at where Facebook is amongst its competitors in the market, um, with all of those little stories capabilities. So, if you're not sure what those are, um, hopefully you've used uh, Instagram, and rather than just viewing a feed of content on there, there's also um, live. Uh, sort of sent content. Mm. Yeah, yeah, streams, yeah. yeah. That you can sort of dash across the top and it feels a little bit more immediate. Mm. Uh, these, are, these are the Facebook live streams you no, mean? No, not, I'm not saying on Instagram, like uh, the, the stories mm. at the top. So Facebook's tried to do the same sort of thing and it's just, yeah, live stories and little momentary glimpses of things and really feeding in from so many trends that have come up over the last few years, like trends of Periscope and Meerkat trying to do that. Snapchat, obviously, definitely tapping into the, you can't save this and post later unless you're a brand. You have to, you know, get on top of this as an immediate content supplier Mm -hmm. and push it out there. I'd I'd be interested in seeing if there's any uh, discussion of the uptake and it's been a pretty massive uptake in the last year of um, Facebook bots. So for the chats and particularly for, um, you know, media companies, and uh, websites that sell uh, or advertise real estate, for example, um, it's become a really powerful tool for broadcasting your own content through a uh, Facebook bot. Definitely. So, and, and I'd be interested in seeing if there if there's any uh, but also, data surrounding that. Yeah, but also engaging with. Um you know, helping users and mm. dealing with problems. And that's something that Facebook traditionally hasn't had a great reputation at in terms of handling, you know, moderation of content. What they have spoken about so far is augmented reality. Um, they've said that it's going to be big on Facebook. It's helping them mix the digital and the physical. And um, it's just something to look out for. Uh, they're also conscious of the fact that live streaming has been used to share really sensitive 
content that they wouldn't want to be there, including um, the apparent killing of somebody that just happened on Sunday. And Zuckerberg's actually mentioned that incident and and said they have a lot more to do here, etc. Um, but it's been something that they've failed to address. You know, what are community standards of publishing? How mm. are they going to moderate their content? For a long time now. Mm. And, they, and they've been saying they're going to do things. I mean, if uh, particularly um, around people who are uh, in trouble, perhaps with mental health issues or dealing with um, uh, thoughts of uh, suicide and other, other things. Uh, Facebook have done a lot of overtures of saying they're going to do things about this, um, but we're, we're still yet to see uh, mm. anything in particular. Uh, have, if, if you are struggling with any uh, suicide issues, uh, you can call Lifeline, incidentally, on uh, 13 11 14. If only Facebook had handy little care <laughs> tips like that. Well, I mean, perhaps it's the future. Yeah, perhaps, well, I mean, perhaps, yeah, Facebook has a, a larger role to play. It, it looks like most of the future they're showing off in the last little while has been the AR features, and they're talking about clever tools to turn two-conventional... Uh, two-dimensional camera images into three-dimensional models and then add animations and things. It does feel very inspired by Snapchat experiences. Mm, yeah. yep. um, and it's all yeah. about the cool things we can do rather than the massive impact we have on society. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, so in something a little bit deeper, in R&D news, Sam, what have we got? So researchers at the University of uh, British uh, Victoria in British Columbia, uh, they're developing a material... Uh, which enables more power efficient um, uh, memory transfer, basically. And basically, um, this material uh, reads light as opposed to electronic signals. Um, and basically, the material is dub dubbed the light-induced magno, uh, magneto uh, resistive RAM, or the Ally RAM for short. And um, basically, the way that they describe it is it makes computer chips exist on a molecular level. Um, so this has the capacity to change a lot, particularly in the next decade coming up. So obviously um, there's intentions to use this in computers and phones and the like, but it definitely has, um, it, it reaches far past the communications technology um, and perhaps has uses in, um, in uh, medical the, the medical field as well. Yeah, I, I liked that they said that there was an e-waste awareness component mm. to this to this development and that it might reduce the amount of e-waste used for this sort of storage, which is great news. Yeah, um, something uh, in particular that they're hoping to overcome is um, the, the heat issue of um, how computers and uh, a lot of the components run as they run, the more um, sort of powerful they are, the, the, the hotter they get and... Um, when they sort of reach that threshold, obviously, they they can melt down or they. And we've can got just to use all apart. this energy to yeah. keep cooling them down. Mm. Yeah. Um. So basically, this um is supposedly not going to come into that issue at all. Right. Very interesting. Um. I wanted to bring up an article I saw this week, which is about. Um. It was a bit of a think piece, really. Um. Looking at the rates of countries going cashless and speculating that China might be cashless before the West achieves it. And, and it was sort of really singling out China amongst the Asian countries as being ahead on this curve. Mm -hmm. uh, but it kind of bundled the West together, which was curious. It was, it was a, bit, um, a bit strange. But uh, the co-founder of a company called Platinum um, 
has been looking at the $7.2 trillion mobile payments market and, you know, that's what the Platinum uh, company works within. Mm. So they've they've been keenly looking at, you know, the, these trends. And in a note to shareholders, um, the co-founder of Platinum, Andrew Clifford, has mentioned the almost ubiquitous nature of cashless payments in Chinese society. And, uh, and has said it's pretty interesting how they've kind of leapfrogged um, another another trend in the developed world. Um, it's it's interesting. I, I was reading an article. About, it was it was about I think um, other per, like just general purchases in 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 China, but the ability to use WeChat, which is you know the mm. kind of ubiquitous um, uh, social media part of Weibo. platform, yeah. part of Weibo mm. um, in in China, you can actually use WeChat to pay people and directly. And I'm not sure if there are, if there is that capability with any of the social networks that we use here in Australia, at the very least. And if we would be keen on that, even yeah, if there no, was, yeah. you know, merging that with all of our other data. Well, that's it. And, and I mean, you know, I, I know people who are uncomfortable with the idea of Apple Pay. Mm. You know, having having your credit card details on on a phone that is more likely to be stolen than your wallet is. Um, without the requisite checks and balances, but maybe maybe there's a, a level of trust there. There's a, um, a an infographic from mid last year that is about going cashless around the world and looking at the trends. Um, the the people with the let me just see the highest proportion of um, non cash transactions were still North America as a as a bunch with fifty two percent of non cash transactions. That's quite high. Mm. Um, Western Europe was thirty four percent, but the Asia pack, um, the developed part of the Asia pack, which includes China and Japan, was 35%. See, and I think that's where this sort of thing was coming and this tre- this has moved on since then, obviously. See, this that's really interesting because I would have thought that the percentages would be far higher than that. Yeah. Th- 34% to me as a percentage of all transactions to be cashless doesn't really seem particularly high. And you think of, I mean, when, when I think of cashless societies, for some reason my mind goes immediately to Sweden. I'm not sure how where they stand in it, but the fact that they're not like they're not even as high as where it would be in North America is is, is interesting. Mm. Mm. Also, every time I uh, chat with uh, people who've recently moved to Melbourne from parts of New Zealand, I'm really um, I've been quizzing them because one person said to me that they were surprised how much we still use cash in Australia, um, and so I've been quizzing other New Zealanders who I meet about how. Uh, prolific the whole cashless society thing is there and they're like yeah we use it for very small transactions and that's the part that doesn't seem to have crossed over so much in Australia there's still that concept of the minimum spend transaction before you can use a card or use your phone mm. I've, I've just uh, speaking of uh, what I was just talking about with with regard to Sweden I, mm. I've just done a quick research um, they only use cash for 20% of their total transactions right. so I think by head of population it's it's very high but I think in the grand scheme of things perhaps they've been uh, averaged out by uh, other countries in the in the EU and Western developed countries, and, I, and I'm certainly reading from you know a report that's mid last year, mm, so yep. things have moved on tremendously. But yeah, fascinating stuff and um, kind of interesting interesting market to get in. Um, I love not having 
to carry cash anymore. But then I saw someone at the post office today not able to use their phone to <laughs> pay for something. And the post office guy was like, have you got any cash? It's $4.25. And he's like, oh, no. And he's, he's, he's sweating. What am I going to do? He's like, oh, I might have it in the car. He's, he's gone to raid his his, his car parking fund. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but since there's no cash tolls anymore, then there's no, there are no coins in the car. Yeah. But it's interesting because I, and I mean, I've, 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 I've personally like using cash because it's a lot easier to follow where my money is going if I'm using it. But I know that it's a very backwards way of thinking. I find it's harder to know where my money is going because I can't look back at the transactions and classify them. So I like to use apps like Pocketbook and keep track of where my spending's going. Mm. So if, you know... If I'm using cash, maybe I'm embarrassed to track something. <laughs> I'm, I may have been known to do that on the occasional, okay, shady cheeseburger purchase. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, a, let's, let's, not, let's not discuss those. No. <laughs> I've let's, been there for far too many of those. Oh, let's really not. All right. <laughs> on the line at the moment, we would like to welcome Joel van der Vostenbosch. He is from Alta, where he is the co-founder. And uh, Alta is a game development and VR company. Welcome, Joel. Hello. Thanks for joining us all the way from Sydney. Now, Alta was just founded in 2016 by you and your two co-founders, um, all based in Sydney. What was the motivation for breaking out on your own and um, starting your own game company? So we uh, we saw a huge opportunity with the, I guess the the coming out of VR uh, in the in the masses, and so. We really looked at, you know, w- was there anything missing currently? And and from that, we saw that there was a huge lack of multiplayer experiences and there was a huge lack of experiences which really let you explore and discover new things. So from that, we, we basically started discussing what could fix that and that's where our game, A Township Tales, sort of came to life. So A Township Tale is, is your first title. Um, you started production in September 2016 and it's had a really warm reception just in the alpha version out in the game community. What can you tell us about A Township Tale for someone who has not seen anything about it yet? So A Township Tale is a multiplayer game uh, that's being developed for various uh, virtual reality headsets. Um, and players can join the game and they join a town with other players where one player could be a blacksmith or another player a miner or another player a fisherman. So you all can take on various roles and work together to, to build up the town or maybe work against each other to, to really just cause a stir. But overall, these players are just uh, advancing the town, getting better weapons and better armour, exploring deeper into the mines surrounding the surrounding the, sorry, around the forest, surrounding the town or deeper in the mines, um, just really exploring the world and, and, and turning it into a place they want to be. So in, in my imagination at the moment, this is sounding a little bit like a more fleshed out, grown up Minecraft. Are there any similarities there to you? So we, we, do, uh, we do often hear that. Um, there are definitely a lot of similarities to Minecraft, um, but if if we were to sort of mash wor- worlds together, um, I guess a good way of thinking about it is the sort of Warcraft world of medieval weapons and, and fantasy sort of settings, um, 
mixed in with that sort of freedom and creativity of Minecraft. You really... Yeah, you're really speaking to me there because Warcraft is a favourite of mine and clicking on the little chickens, you know, it had a lot of personality. And even just looking at all the, the visual artefacts you've got um, on your on your website, I can, I can see there's a lot of character in this. Dan, did you...? Well, I was, I was just going to say, it sounds like a, a really solid idea. What, what was the an initial feedback you were getting when, when you when you uh, started uh, getting, out, getting it out into the marketplace? So a lot of people were super excited simply because uh, it's such a it's such a, a pure sort of vision, I guess. Um, the idea that there's nothing nothing overly out there in terms of vision. People can very much understand medieval fantasy, but there's nowhere they can actually go to get that pure experience currently, um, and so. And so for a lot of people, simply the idea that they can enter a world and they can perfect their archery skills and then they can take them to whatever extreme they want. They're not limited by general game mechanics because in VR you have so much more flexibility. It's a so sp- just, just an example, I could, grab a, I could grab a flaming torch and toss it in the air and then try and shoot an arrow which, uh, which can be lit on fire through that torch to see it catch on fire if I can uh, if I can pass it right over the torch midair. Nice. Like there's lots of just sort of freedom to explore and discover new ways you can overcome challenges and do things and I guess show off to your friends um, and and do all of this in this medieval fantasy setting as well. There seems to be a lot of emergent um, gameplay options. What did you um, find? Uh, so you showed the uh, the pre-alpha at PAX um, in that short three-day event. Um, what did you find players sort of gravitated towards in terms of trying to experience new things, trying to find you know little ways of breaking the game and experiencing new things? Yeah, we we definitely uh, we had one one um, repeating bug during PAX, and, and players loved finding that. Um, but uh, in the in the in the packs build, we the main two features there were was was the archery and and the mining. Um, and so naturally, a lot of players sort of gravitated towards the archery, just seeing what they could do. And we had players trying to do all sorts of trick shots, throwing stuff in, up in the air and and shooting them after <laughs> doing 360 spins on the spot or whatever. Um, it summed to an incredible amount of success. We had. Uh, I distinctly remember one person throwing a coin up in the air quite far away, um, teleporting a couple of steps, and then turning around to shoot the coin before it hit the ground. So those sort of things are pretty impressive. Um, Sounds very a, satisfying. A lot, of, a, a lot of the emergence comes from the multiplayer element of it. So, uh, of course, by yourself, you can do all sorts of things, but as soon as you have two people in the same room talking to each other, saying, hey, let's do this, let's try something out that's really wacky, you can end up with some pretty pretty funny results. Um, and so we did have, a, uh, we, we did have a, a lot of situations where players were interacting in ways that we hadn't even thought of. Um, players just playing little games with each other, such as... Uh, scissors, paper, rock, or <laughs> hide and seek, stuff like that, uh, which, is, which is really awesome to see um, because uh, th- I guess that's a big part of the game. Just We want players to feel like they're discovering things, to be discovering, not just feel like it, but to be discovering things that uh, us as developers haven't even 
experienced or thought of ourselves. Yeah, cool. Um, so you mentioned uh, in passing there um, two players being in the same room. Is this the sort of experience um, that you have to be um, in a local situation playing in the same living room or um, will there be like a voice chat system available and people will be able to play, say, you know, from overseas and um, being sort of brought together by this um, communal game? So when I said same room, I meant same space in my mind. So, mm. yeah, so it is a multiplayer game. Uh, we, we've had uh, people playing in Australia with people in, in France um, and people in America, like all across the world. So um, it, it's definitely uh, multiplayer. At, at this stage, we're focusing on uh, just sort of more local tests because we are mainly exhibiting at... Um, at events like PAX, uh, but in the end, the game will be completely international, and you'll be able to play with your friends anywhere in the world. Joel, um, you mentioned, and I mean, yeah, it's uh, it is one of you know the very first kind of multiplayer VR experiences with a history of kind of the solitary solitariness that you kind of get from being in a VR space. Did you find that people were getting disconcerted by the fact that there was someone else in there that they were interacting with? Um, I don't. I don't think that's something we've come across really. Uh, people are usually blown away and excited by the fact that there's someone who's so so real with them. Uh, in 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 other video games, you don't get the same sense because they're they're quite static. Uh, they may be walking around, but they're very scripted animations or whatever. Whereas in in virtual reality, because people are so alive, like you can actually see them. Their, their, their body moving as they breathe and their their arms are so fluid and natural uh, and of, of course on top of that stuff like voice chat you feel so present in this world that almost the fact that they're not in the same room as you just stops being a, a thought in your head um, it's it's more of just a immersion uh, and yeah the, the, just nothing draws you out of that really Joel, it sounds really exciting um, being in an environment where you don't have to deal with that non-playable character type of um, dead feeling so much. Uh, but I wondered if we could step back a bit and, and look at your studio's process in making a game and some of the decisions that you had to make in this very emerging environment. Um, you're solving new problems with virtual reality. If we look at the Minecraft example, you've got a generative landscape where people can just keep on ploughing forward and exploring a world. Um, what sort of decision did you make about how big your world would be and how you would cope with that? So uh, we are in a quite large landscape currently uh, that we're working with. Um, it's currently four kilometres by four kilometres. Um, a lot of the size of the game is is quite up in the air still. We're, we're working things out. Um, but one of the reasons uh, we've chosen not to have everything procedurally generated is because we want everything to feel handcrafted. Oh, we wow. want every element of the world to feel exciting and new. We don't want uh, we we don't want the sort of downfalls that many procedural games have. In that, eventually you get to a new place and you're just like, yeah, this is more of the same of that other place that we were in before. Um, because naturally, uh, random landscapes will end up repeating. Like, just like 
rolling a dice over and over again, you are going to get the same number eventually. <laughs> um, and we and we don't want that. We want every every place to to have a purpose and to have a unique emotion uh, attached to it. It's interesting that you have started to um, already um, talk about the handcrafted nature of all the environments and that sort of thing. Um, how has it been different developing in a VR space as opposed to um, what we would now consider um, a traditional gaming space? Uh, there, there are definitely some differences. Um, one of them, one of the, the more noticeable ones, are it's so easy to notice problems uh, in a general game you can be walking around and if this object was slightly hovering you would never notice it just it's not something you would notice whereas in vr because you have that depth perception you can instantly mm. tell hey that object is it's is ever so slightly like half a centimeter off the ground uh, on top of that things feel very different we had to um, sort of distort something. So doorways, for example, we've made a little bit larger just because in VR, even though in real life you're actually almost the height of a door generally, in VR it just felt a little claustrophobic. And so we're trying to sort of fight those feelings of claustrophobia in some cases, um, not in others. The caves are a very different story. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting uh, that you're talking about sort of like figuring things out. Like, are there any VR experiences that um, you've drawn from, from, um, you know, going to these uh, live events or just anything that you've been tracking and learning from as you go? So we, we definitely do a lot of research uh, into, the, into the games out there. Um, unfortunately, there's... I guess fortunately for us as well, there's there's no game out there that that really covers the space that Township does. Uh, but there's definitely games which we can sort of look at and learn from, um, both from their successes and their failures. Mm. So games like um, uh, Rec Room, for instance, has a, a very successful multiplayer environment going. Uh, and so uh, some of the social elements from that, such as being able to high five uh, and just sort of dance around with other players and really have that, that presence uh, is something that we can definitely be inspired from because it, it, it definitely does make players want to be there and want to be uh, interacting with other players. And then there's other games which have some aspects that we're going to have in Township Tales, such as uh, Crazy Fishing just came out. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's definitely a fun game. Um, and although our fishing will probably not be as extensive as that game has taken it, um, mm. we, we definitely have seen some of the fantastic ideas that have been coming out of those sort of ways that we can make some tasks which might not naturally seem as appealing to players, how we can really stir them up and, and get them excited to, to carry out these sort of jobs. So, Joel, with such a, a new company and, and you know, a young, um, a young company, when you're taking on things like having a beautifully crafted town or making decisions about what to do programmatically and, and what to do, you know, with other techniques, um, stylistic decisions and, and engineering decisions, how do you divide the labour between your team at the moment? So, our current team has... Um, we have... Uh, a lead designer and artist, um, Boromi, 
and for the most part he's taking the lead in the direction that we're we're going with things um and so uh from that point on it it becomes a matter of uh myself and uh our two other programmers evaluating how much time it takes to to go through a lot of the the tasks on the programming side and the art team uh regarding how long that side of things uh will take and generally they're quite two separate parts um as we're developing the functionality and then the art just comes in uh later with the content um and you mentioned oh sorry oh uh, but basically it's it's just a matter of looking at where the priorities are and making sure we're heading in the right direction Mm. we won't we won't necessarily always get our our scheduling correct and we won't necessarily always get um, things done at, at the time we expected, but then the flip side happens as well. And so it's it's just a matter of sort of working out how, how efficiently we can get things done to the quality uh, that we expect of ourselves. Speaking of priorities and um, deadlines and the like, is there any indication as to when you want to release the game, at least in sort of the, the early access beta stage? So um, the plan is to go into a closed alpha at some time soon, where soon is super uh, <laughs> indescriptive. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, from that point... We're hoping to just get uh, a couple dozen people on board helping us test and helping work sh- helping us be sure we're at the stage where we can start opening that up and, and getting players in without major issues. Um, our number one uh, focus, I guess, with that at this stage is we, we don't want to suddenly say, hey, everyone jump on board, let's play this game, and then just for it to, to fall apart straight away because mm-hmm. of some bugs that we haven't come across. So, yeah. Um, do you have um, any idea where the sort of end goal lies in terms of um, like what you want to have released? Is there that sort of you know um, initial goal of you want a world this big and you want to be able to do all these um, jobs? How many jobs do you have lined up um, in terms of like how the players can interact with the world? Where where's the end goal at the moment? So regarding uh, the closed alpha. We plan on having uh, blacksmithing in there. We plan on having uh, quite extensive mining in there and uh, a fair bit of combat, uh, mainly player to player, but potentially also some some enemy creatures. Um, and what that will hopefully do is allow players to really feel like they're advancing and getting ahead and having a fulfilling experience uh, that doesn't have a limit. And once we've reached that stage, we can start adding on new professions and just expanding the game from that point. So we could be adding in uh, woodcutting, for instance, and then some carpenting and then fishing or whatever we see fit or whatever the players really want to see uh, so that we can be expanding the, the experience and bringing new roles into the, uh, into the town. Mm. Joel, you mentioned early on that you were working with a variety of headsets. Um, I haven't developed in VR environments. Could you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about um, developing for those different headsets? And you know, what are there software development kits for different he- headsets? And you know, how difficult it is it porting to different things, or is it 
kind of easy and then that's just something you do at the end? So um, from a programming side of things, we have each of the sort of interfaces with the headsets wrapped um, at a, a quite low level in the, in the software. And mm-hmm. what that means is 99% of the time when we're developing, we don't even need to think about the, the different platforms. Right. So we never need to say, okay, let's start porting the blacksmithing to Oculus, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's never a conversation that's, that's going to, to pop up. Um, we may occasionally come across a bug which might be on a particular platform in a particular area, but it's quite a, it's quite a different story at that stage. So really, um, it's just, yeah, it's that low-level wrapping of what are their interfaces to and from the controllers uh, and to and from the headset, and how does that then plug into the, to the input into our game so we know what these players are doing. Mm. And uh, a pretty contemporary issue. Have you had any of your users experience some VR sickness? And have you had any attempts to try and uh, improve that experience? So VR sickness is something we're constantly trying to make sure it doesn't happen. And we actually have a absolutely fantastic track track record of, I think, maybe two people out of the thousands we've had play get sick. one of which gets sick playing uh, 2D. <laughs> so, like, they couldn't play Call of Duty on a, on a flat screen. Um, and the other one was already feeling sick. So, uh, Look, your, your record speaks for itself. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but sickness in VR is definitely a, a big issue. Um, and there are lots of ways that, uh, as developers, we can sort of uh, reduce that. Of course, of course, the big one is making sure the the frame rate is always um, in the in the high high numbers, uh, up above ninety uh, frames a second. Um, but then, other ways we do it is, is is stuff like our graphics are all very quite smooth. There's no high high pixel density uh, sort of images like you would get in a sci-fi game. For mm. So is there any, any truth to the rumour that uh, if you can see like a rendered nose in VR that you won't get sick? Because I was thinking, does this mean we're, we're destined for a world of medieval helmets with nose pieces? Um, I, that's actually not one we've, we've, uh, we've looked into. I have heard it myself. Um, the, the reason I haven't looked into it myself is, 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 is firstly because we haven't actually had huge issues. Um, but... The, uh, the headset itself does have a, a black sort of area there, um, and I was under the impression that that was to help with it on a base level already oh, so that right. developers didn't have to um, deal with anything there. Because as a player, you're going to be less weirded out by your vision not being there rather than actually seeing a nose, which, uh, <laughs> which might be a bit weird. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, sorry, I can't. I can't confirm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have one last question be, before we have to head off. Um, is your intention with the game post-release to keep supporting it and uh, patching it, giving it new content, or um, will it be a sort of standalone experience for the the multiplayer um, component? Absolutely. So we want players to 
constantly be giving us feedback, basically. From the day we go out into closed alpha, um, up until no one wants to play the game anymore, <laughs> we want to be be there for players going, what content do you want? Maybe, maybe holiday updates, maybe... Uh, new sort of modules and expansions to find when you when you come across the the caves. Um, maybe new creatures, new enemies, new weapons, whatever. Um, we just want to be constantly making the the experience uh, not necessarily full of more stuff, but more fulfilling. So uh, whether that means replacing and updating, or whether it means adding, uh, we'll see. But we definitely do want to be. Uh, continuing to support players to really enjoy and uh, continue enjoying with their friends the world of Township Tale. Mm. Joel, thank you so much for your time this evening. If our listeners want to um, keep in touch with what's happening with Township Tale, they can go to www.townshiptale.com and join the township and just sign up for development updates and other announcements and maybe the potential to participate in a beta. Uh, Thanks so much for your time this evening, Joel. Thank you. All right. We cannot avoid uh, federal politics this week <sighs> because there's been news on the 457 visas front. Yesterday, Malcolm Turnbull announced a repeal of the subclass 457 visa, um, which people would know is is one of those skilled migrant temporary visas. Um, The government has also flagged changes to eligibility requirements for permanent employee-sponsored visas. Uh, This includes reducing the maximum age limit for those visas to 45 years, tightening the English language requirements, um, requiring at least three years work experience, whereas previously it was two, um, strengthening the requirement for employers to contribute to training Australian workers and formally extending the requirement for employers to pay the Australian market rate for the nominated occupation. So at first glance, some of these things don't seem like bad ideas. Um, protecting people's uh, pay rates is a really, like it seems like a good thing. Mm. I'm willing to listen to experts and hear if there's anything problematic about that, but it sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. Um, Strengthening I mean, requirements for employees to contribute to training Australian workers, sure. Mm, yeah, and, and like, I mean, how is that measured and managed? Maybe the devil's in the detail. Maybe, but and and you have seen that business leaders, by and large, have been cautiously supportive of it, except it seems in the tech industry, mm. um, where I mean, it's 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 one of the largest um, users of the four five seven visa system. So um, it is uh, the 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 job title software and applications programmer is actually the biggest, single biggest job title of uh, anyone who's applied for and been granted a 457. I I haven't got it in front of me at the moment, but when I saw a breakdown of of the industry sectors who use these visas, the numbers were all quite low and sort of spread around. Mm. I mean, I thought it was only 13% or something in IT compared to all of the other areas using them. Hospitality was close. Yeah, absolutely. But but then if you look at the the opposite metric whereby you look at the percentage of people who work in the industry that are on these visas, yes. uh, you look at um, Mike Cannon-Brooks, the uh, founder of, or one of the founders of Atlassian, has mm. said that um, of their Australian workforce, 25% are on 457 visas. Yes. And... If if we're, if if pe- if uh, you know startups aren't able to harness the power of um, knowledge that isn't available in Australia, and we're not talking about uh, you know an unskilled job that no one wants to do, these are these are skills shortages that we have, and, um, and we know you know we we hammer on about it on this show a fair bit the the 
pipeline issues with STEM subjects and uh, getting experienced people in there. You know, it happens at the pipeline. It also happens with all the mid-career exodus, particularly of um, minorities. Absolutely. And, and especially when, you know, someone might be uh, offered a certain, you know, a reasonable salary to do a job here. But if you go over to Silicon Valley, you're going to be offered four or five times the amount of money to you do just, the exact same thing. You just won't be able to afford anywhere to live. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> although, let's, although let's talk about Australia, let's not. So let's look at what other details we know. Um, the government will be significantly re- reducing the current occupation list used for skilled migration visas and the 457. So it actually goes beyond the 457 these changes. Um, The reforms are to begin immediately and the implementation will be completed in full um, by March next year. Uh, From March next year, a new temporary skill shortage visa will be available and this will have two streams, a short-term for up to two years migration and a medium-term stream for up to four years. Um, Yeah, so there will be options. Obviously, for anyone who's here on a 457 now, um, it's it's an issue of concern and they're waiting to hear more details. Um, they've said that nothing's happening to those people right now. The situation which they've come here won't change, but we're not quite sure when these new effects will start to to happen mm. and if it will affect anyone on existing visas. Yeah, no, the devil will definitely be in the detail there, I think. So what have we got? Atlassian's come out. Um, digital technologies have contributed $79 billion to the Australian economy in 2014. We haven't got anything more current than that? Mm, not Maybe that I can not see. in my Sydney Morning Herald source. No. And <laughs> I've, I've, I appear to have lost... Uh, access mm. to my to my computer right now but so uh, um there's a there's a co-founder of code club who's been quoted in their article and we've we've spoken to her before her name's kelly tagalan she came to australia from the us in 2013 on a working holiday visa and later moved on to a 457 um she's part of an education non-profit that teaches computer computer programming to children aged between 9 and 11 you've got these sort of amazing people coming here and uh contributing to actually the pipeline of people with STEM qualifications in Australia, yeah, it's it's a shame to see um, to see their roles threatened when you know everything we hear is that we haven't got enough people with those skills. Mm. Well, here's hoping that where there are gen, and we're not to say this isn't to say that the everyone on the visa is should be on the visa, but in, in this particular instance, it seems like there are definitely skills shortages, and and uh, hopefully it doesn't actually actually continues to address the problems that we have in STEM areas rather than just a a blanket um, killing of uh, a a really viable industry that's still very much in its infancy in Australia. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, It is uh, three minutes to eight on uh, Triple R. There are some fantastic uh, prizes there um, for April Amnesty. I'm I'm particularly intrigued by the Scribe Publications, uh, 10 free books. They do actually do some fantastic tech uh, publications as well over at Scribe. if you are a freeloading listener or if you know one, now's the time. Come on, guys. You, yeah. We love you. We love you, but we love you even more when you subscribe. So uh, get onto it. We really do. Um, and upcoming, there are two smaller events before we follow up with some uh, more. Um, so in the esports world, um, in the oceanic esports world, um, 
our League of Legends champions have been announced and it is the Dire Wolves and they will be going to, uh, flying out to Brazil in uh, the coming weeks to play against 10 other smaller regional teams to see if they can go to the uh, League of Legends mid-season Invitational where they'll be playing against the best teams around the world. And upcoming in the first weekend of May, uh, we are getting a, a local um, esports event for CSGO. Um, ESL uh, Extreme Masters will be a uh, hosting event uh, on the first weekend. Uh, so 6th and 7th of May, if you happen to be in Sydney uh, and are interested in seeing uh, one of these events live, definitely check it out. Um, and there's uh, some more events upcoming. There That's are. Um, t- tomorrow night uh, at the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the Henley Club is hosting the Ethics of Artificial Intelligence panel event. So um, t- panellists are Tom Mackey, development, uh, sorry, deployment strategist at AI Aficionado at Palantir, which uses uh, software and big data to serve its clients in the national security, intelligence and R&D spaces. Chris Horsler leads the data science team at Zendesk, uh, innovator in the ca- customer relationship management space. They recently brought their AP, Asia-Pacific headquarters to Melbourne um, and uh, will be moderated by Anna Newbury, who is a driver assistance technologies engineer at Ford. Uh, We'll be tweeting out links to the Eventbrite link for that. That's tomorrow night at 6pm. Pretty excited about that. Thank you to our guest, Joel Van Der... Oh, God, your name's not in front of me right now, Joel. Oh, no. Apologies, Joel. Joel Van Van Der Borstenbosch, which is a wonderful name, um, from the Alta Game Development Company. Thanks for joining us, listeners. We'll be back next week. Do stay tuned for Anthony Crew with International Pop Underground. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au